everyone, and welcome back to the latest season of New Way, the podcast that explores the connections between people, their communities, and the ways that context shapes faith. I'm your host, Sarah Hayden. If a group of people are collectively engaged, the possibilities are literally endless. Just think of the problems that could be solved, the opportunities that could come to life and thrive. All around our cities, towns, and world, worship presupposes a gathering of people who sit or stand or dance or kneel together for a finite amount of time in the same space, who then scatter in countless directions. What responsibility do we have in the church to engage people and send forth those gathered in the Christian community to rise and use their gifts for a world that is as just and generous as we yearn for it to be. The biggest thing which is kind of interesting is the number of people who don't recognize their own value. And this is one of the great contributions that they can make to the church while the church makes a contribution to them in their lives is when they come to understand that some skill, some passion that they have is far more valuable, can be used in the service of God, in the service of God's people. And they really didn't see it as important and they didn't understand the value that they brought. And when you unlock that with folks, it produces an amazing change in their lives. Today's guest, Rich Hong, went from doing groundbreaking work as a synthetic organic chemist and early software engineer into ministry, a move he describes as God's response to him having too much fun and making too much money. You're going to like this one. Today, Rich and I talk about the difference between the church that strives to be the hero of people's lives and one that can become a guide for people's own heroic journeys. Let's jump right in. Rich Hong, thank you so much for being here on the podcast today. I'm really honored that you have me. I'm glad to be here. I think we're going to have a lot of fun together. Absolutely. We find ourselves talking about ministry today, and we've been entering a season where we've talked about technology, online ministry ministry happening in different spaces. But speaking of different spaces, Rich, you did not actually start your career in the field of ministry. No. Would you tell us about that? Uh, Yeah, I actually, I started out, actually, I'd been a chemistry major in college. And so my first job was working for a company that did the very first generation of laboratory automation systems. And then I formed my own business as a consultant where I was developing software tools for pharmaceutical research companies in new drug development. And so I did that for a while, and then I got a call to ministry, which I've described as God deciding that I was making too much money and having too much fun and needed to stop it. (laughs) That old call. Yes, we know it well. You and I talked recently about some of the things that you recognize in your training as a synthetic organic chemist and software engineer that help you think about ministry and what kind of ingredients a church might need, for example, to function as a healthy, vibrant congregation. The link between the kind of analysis you did in science that you now bring into ministry itself. 
Would you describe that a little bit? Yeah, I think one of the skills, both in software and in chemistry, had to do with taking larger problems and then breaking them down into smaller problems and smaller problems and smaller problems. In chemistry, we would identify a molecule that we wanted to synthesize. Often the problem was that they found a compound in nature that was effective. One of the more famous ones was Taxol, which is a breast cancer drug, Mm -hmm. and it was extracted from the bark of a rare tree, and there just aren't enough of those trees. And so one of the challenges among chemists became, how can you synthesize this? So you know what you're trying to make, you know that it's biologically active, but it's a complicated molecule. Mm -hmm. And so you were taught to put it on a board and say, well, looking at this, if I had this and that, I could make that, except you don't have this or that. (laughs) And so you take that and you break it down further and say, well, if I had A and B, I could make that. And you would keep going down the chain until you got to things that were either items that had been made and they were known in the literature or things that you could buy. And that would often be a synthetic process that was 26 or 27 steps deep, 26, 27 layers deep. Mm -hmm. And so you would then work on this. And that's why it would take months or years for a team to come up with a successful synthesis. But that was an approach to the problem that I brought into ministry in terms of thinking about the different aspects of a vibrant church. A vibrant church does all kinds of different things well. And then you start saying, okay, so if I want a really vibrant, active, missional church that's going to have an impact in the community, what are the things we need? And then if you don't have any of those, you go, well, what do I need to build those? And by breaking it down, you can begin to see which ones you're closer to achieving, and you can see where people or resources that come into the life of the church were sent to you, really, I believe, by the Spirit to fill in one of those spots that helps Mm. you build what you eventually hope to build. Rich, I love this as a view of the church. And I think if you're listening and you feel like raising your hand of like, we're 21 levels below what we actually need to be. It's just hilarious to me because so many of us find ourselves in congregations where we feel like if you were to find some fruitful ingredients to work towards health and vibrancy, you know, that person just moved away or we got so close with this type of partnership, but it didn't end up happening. Or if only we had the budget for this sort of initiative. But as um, someone working in the field of synthetic organic chemistry, you didn't see it as an impossibility. You couldn't. You realized that eventually through time and following this process, you would get closer and closer to the goal of synthesizing what you were after. Yes. And it also keeps you going through the process because at the end of the day, you can say, wow, I'm only 19 steps away. (laughs) You know, we made some progress on one of them. We actually got closer. And so it enables you to feel like you're closer to where you want to be, even when that end product seems like it's really far off in the distance. Have you been able to get to a place within your current congregation where you began to recognize this is an ingredient, like here's the ingredient that we were after, or these are the ingredients that we could name that embody missional, vibrant 
healthy church. Yes. And I think one of the things that's been an interesting challenge for me is the number of times we've realized that that ingredient was there a lot longer and we had failed to recognize that it was there. Mm. We have had so many instances of people who actually had an amazing passion and talent for something that was really good for moving the church forward where they could really plug in and help. And we didn't know they had it (laughs) because they didn't know we needed it. Oh, wow. And so one of the questions that I'm still wrestling with is how do you communicate all of these pieces, all of the places where people can plug in? Because on the flip side, if a person is the perfect piece, but it isn't a valuable piece until you have two or three others, you can't plug them in until the other pieces are there. Mm. And so how you balance knowing that you have this but not being able to deploy it is an interesting situation when you're dealing with people and not chemicals on a shelf. (laughs) (laughs) What kind of environment do you need in the meantime as you think about finding these passions, finding these talents, and knowing, here's one, oh gosh, she would be amazing at this particular thing. She's got it, but we need these other two people to come along, or we haven't yet fit all the components together? What keeps that person there in the midst of waiting? Well, first of all, finding out. It's amazing. It's so simple. It boils down to personal relationships. Mm. I mean, the number of these things that I find out about, not because I talked to them, but because someone else in the church said, hey, did you know that so-and-so? I'm like, no, I had no idea. And then sometimes we have a conversation. And on occasion, They also actually, once you talk to them about this picture, often know other people who can fill in the pieces. Mm. And so they themselves can become a conduit to helping to fill out that corner of the world because those pieces often are related to one another. And so the more you get to know people in the fullness of their lives, because often they'll only tell you the things they think you want to know about them. Hmm. What do you think people think pastors want to know about them? So often it is so traditional church. It's all about how can they fit the existing church as they see it. And that's one of the things that I always talk to folks about is we're a constantly evolving organization. People are irreplaceable. So when one person leaves, you can't plug another person in and say you've replaced them. It doesn't work that way. So every time a person leaves, every time a person comes, we're a different church Hmm. because the individual gifts are there. And so I'm always telling people who join, my standard new member speech is don't look for the hole that you can fit in because that's going to be like a square peg trying to go into a round hole. I go, find a blank spot on the board and drill a hole that's shaped like you. Hmm. And that's how we're going to become the church that we need to be in this season of life, and we will continue to evolve and grow as the people who comprise us evolve and grow and change. I love that. What are the different ways that people respond to that invitation? Well, well, every which way imaginable. (laughs) Sometimes they come up with some amazing things. The biggest thing, which is kind of interesting, is the number of people who don't recognize their own value. 
And this is one of the great contributions that they can make to the church while the church makes a contribution to them in their lives is when they come to understand that some skill, some passion that they have is far more valuable, can be used in the service of God, in the service of God's people. And they really didn't see it as important and they didn't understand the value that they brought. And when you unlock that with folks, it produces an amazing change in their lives. Absolutely. When you think about Rich Hong coming into the pastorate, sensing a call into ministry and being that person who's drilling a hole and fitting into something that you had uniquely to contribute. I know we've talked a lot about understanding technology, not only as a skill, but as a culture your nuanced and deep understanding and appreciation for that kind of shift that we're faced with as communities. Would that be something that you would say resonates with you when you think about your unique giftedness? Yes, I think it's a matter of timing. It's a matter of the fact that I was an early adopter in technology. So I grew up in my work life with the advent of computers and saw the shift from large mainframes to networks of personal computers. That's a shift that I lived through and lived with. And it also meant that I got to experience culture mediated through technology early on. And so going all the way back to the late 80s, early 90s, if you remember services like CompuServe and Prodigy and AOL. But one of the stories that I tell, which is important, is that in the 90s, I was a part of a group and it was just a very eclectic, technologically focused group, but they had a really wide range of skill sets and knowledge. So you could post a question to this group and someone in there knew the answer and it didn't matter what it was, somehow they knew the answer. But we had never met in person. And one morning I woke up to a message that one of the persons tragically had been in a store that got robbed and he was killed in the robbery. And I cried. And that moment was really telling for me personally because I had never met this person. I knew his name. I knew the company he worked for. I knew that he was married, had a couple of kids, but I had never met him. I didn't know anything about him because in that time, with a 1200 baud modem, you're not sending pictures. Mm -hmm. And so I didn't even see an image of him. I would not have recognized him had we passed each other on a street. But I cried. And so I understood that I could be emotionally impacted by the life of someone I had only known through these messages online. And they weren't one-on-one, -on -one. they were in a large group setting, but he was a part of a community that I was a part of, and we mourned the loss of a community member together, and this is a quarter of a century ago now. What a powerful example and a poignant example, Rich. I'm thinking about many voices I've heard lament the presence of adaptive technology, online services, components that gather Christians or people of faith together outside of the church. You know, maybe you're in your own home, you're dialing in. We're talking about that a lot this season, and we'll probably be talking about it in the future. But there's that sense, I think, the criticism might be, these people don't feel like they need community. They just want to do worship on their own. They feel like they can just kind of imagine who God is or have technology cater to them personally rather than kind of dig in and 
be present in the nitty gritty of this human group of people that connect traditionally in the church. What would you say to that perspective? First, I think that it's important to understand that if a person feels that they're in community, then they are. (laughs) (laughs) And so I don't like to judge whether someone else is in community or not. I'm not going to put my filter on what constitutes community on somebody else. And so there's a certain acceptance of a diversity of perspectives on what it means to be in community that matters for folks. One of the other things that I've noticed is that if you actually think about the history of the mainline church or Presbyterians in particular, we've always believed that community is something that forms first. I mean, have you noticed that Presbyterian churches, as well as some other denominations, but not others, name our churches typically over the communities in which our churches exist? Hmm. First Presbyterian church of... Of, right. Whereas Lutherans and Catholics, for instance, typically don't. They typically name their churches, you know, St. Mary's Church or St. Luke's Church or something like that. But a lot of other denominations name their churches most typically after the community that they're in. But this basically says that before we worshipped, the community existed. Hmm. We're the church of this larger community. So there's a community that exists. There's a community that feels an affinity for one another. And what grew out of that was a worshiping group. And so really building community is the first piece. We have to build community with folks and building community with folks means understanding how they live. It means walking alongside them in life and realizing that they have troubles, they have difficulties, they have stressors, and we can walk alongside with them, create community, and then we can enter worship. Mm -hmm. And a lot of folks are just looking for that community first. And then we lead them toward one of the most important things we do together, which is worship. Yeah, I get the sense that there are times in my life where the technology connects me very, very deeply to the world through the lens of the church at times or through any other lens I happen to be present in deeply through a technological space, you know, through music, through photos through news services and thinking this is what's happening in this place. I think that can be channeled in very spiritually fruitful ways. We don't want people to ignore the world, I don't think, and close in on what's happening between an hour, an hour and 15 minute space in a particular building with a particular set of people only. And to kind of encapsulate that and codify it and say like, this is who we're meant to be. Boom, it's finished. And let's preserve that chemical makeup for posterity. But when we open the technology and people are, I think, physically present in other spaces, unique spaces to them, that peace that they fill when they drill the hole, there's something even deeper that happens. Because you can see, you know, I'm looking out the window and I see certain things in my neighborhood that it's going to be different than what you see or what Marthame sees viewing even the same technology at the same time. Right. I think one of the the harder things is to understand that the technology is so much a part of their lives that 
it's like a language. It would be like, can you understand the people of Paris if you don't speak French? Mm -hmm. The technology isn't a tool. It's just a part of the way people live. And so the fluency has to be natural, and the fluency in it is a part of being able to connect with people in their lives mm -hmm. because it is so just second nature to the way they think. And one of the more interesting things about this is that there's a generations specialist in the business world. His name's Jason Dorsey. And a simple point that he makes is that the younger generations are tech-dependent more than tech savvy. Mm. And this is one of the things that you see in almost any technological advance is that as the technology advances, you actually become less proficient in the details of the tech. Mm. For example, your parents or grandparents were much more likely to have known how to change the oil in their car. And no one I know today does this. Mm. Cars get more advanced and the technology behind the car actually becomes more opaque. Yeah, that makes and sense. And that's happened with computers as well, with the phones. And so in the 80s, those of us who were ripping our machines apart and changing parts ourselves and doing all of these component-level upgrades, now the boxes aren't designed for that as much. You typically take your box, throw it in the dumpster, and then go get a new box. Mm. And so you have younger people who are entirely dependent on a technology that's entirely pervasive in their lives. But to say that they're actually tech savvy isn't true. Mm. They aren't a population of coders. They aren't a population of hardware engineers. Yeah, that's a great point. It makes me think the conversation we've been having about what it means to be moved to do something, you know, how something that is ever present in our lives or maybe even automatic, something we're dependent upon, where engagement happens. You and I talked about participation versus the concept of engagement, of actually being engaged, and that they're significantly different. And I think beginning to unpack the difference between those two things as we consider the ways community is built, in particular in the church or in any other organization or movement, is really, really useful. And I'm wondering if you could think through with me like a classic worship experience and where you see engagement happening and how you describe that, what's actually happening because of that versus quote unquote participation. Yes, I think that one of the things that has been conflated, unfortunately, are the idea that participation means engagement. Mm. And I just don't think that that's the case. They're two completely different things. Participation can be mechanical. Mm -hmm. It can be as mechanical and reluctant as a teenager being asked to do chores. Yeah, They're doing it. They're not happy about it. Mm -hmm. They're doing it because they've been asked to, told to, and they have to. Yeah. Engagement is emotional. It's about caring. And one of the things I experienced recently was seeing Top Gun Maverick. <laughs> and I don't get to change the outcome. Okay. I don't get to participate at all. 
but I'm fully engaged. I want Tom Cruise to succeed in that mission. I want Tom Cruise to fly that plane, and I want the people in the movie to make it through. I hope they survive, because I'm engaged. I care, without having any ability to impact the outcome. Mm. And so one of the things that's so important is how can we get people to be emotionally engaged in our worship? Yeah. For example, in our own worship, whether it's online or in person, one of the most important parts of our service is the prayer time. And people can text in their prayer requests. And so the way it works is we have a texting service and then the text messages go to this inbox and they text them in from wherever they are, whether they're sitting in the space or watching online, they text them in. And then we read them aloud following the sermon at the prayer time. And then we pray them together. But then on top of that, our deacons follow up with every one of those prayer requests. Mm -hmm. So our deacons have access to that prayer inbox and they follow up with every single one appropriately whether it can be anything from hospital visit to sending flowers to sending a card or just a phone call or an email whatever it is they will follow up with the request that Mm -hmm. comes in and so people even if they don't send it in themselves when people are watching that they understand somebody is watching this service and they're texting in a prayer request And they're texting in something that comes out my mouth in the online service. And it will get followed up on. And the engagement starts to build because you have to show people that you care about them before they're going to care about you. Mm. You have a great point of that from Donald Miller that I just loved. When a person wants to live their life to be the hero of the story, that in the story, the most important participant in the story is actually the guide but churches so often position themselves as the hero of people's story rather than the guide and that we don't need heroes in our lives we need guides for our lives exactly he would use examples like in star wars you have luke skywalker who's the hero and everyone sees themselves as luke skywalker we're gonna take out the death star of our lives but we need an obi-wan kenobi to guide us. We need an Obi-Wan to help us unlock the potential within us to do that. And if churches position themselves as Luke Skywalker, the person goes, well, then you don't need me. Friends, that's it for part one, but we'll be back next week with part two of my conversation with Rich Hong. In the meantime, you can join up with the congregation of First Presbyterian Church of Inglewood, that's Inglewood with an E, and catch Rich Hong's famous 90-second sermons online at inglewoodprez.org. And of course, we encourage you to subscribe to New Way wherever you listen to podcasts so you don't miss a single conversation. Thanks for listening. I'm your host, Sarah Hayden. Our fabulous producer is Martha M. Sanders. You can visit us online and see archives of all of our episodes at newchurchnewway.org. Catch you next time. Thank you.